as Diane has been leading us, we've had on the screen a painting by a West African painter. The year is unknown when this was painted. His name is Lasekin, S-A-D, Lasekin. And the reason that we chose this slide, and I should mention right now that the, the person doing the research for me is an alum from two years ago. Her name is Anna Wiebe. She's in Washington, D.C. and has a job in an international business firm. She's not an art major, but she's an English literature major from Westmont with a very artistic eye and a very sensitive spirit. And I gave her the topics to these sermons, the entire semester of sermons. I gave her the scriptures, and then I asked her all summer to research in the Smithsonian and the various art uh, museums in Washington, D.C., and the various libraries, different art that she thought, classic art from all of the different uh, areas of the world and different times and different styles that could emphasize Christ among us. And uh, you'll see what this, this artist has rendered a very familiar scene of Jesus with the children. And it's a very light picture, a light in two senses of the words. It's a black and white sketch. And there's, it's, it's very light in the sense that, that there's not much distraction to it. If you look, Christ is so huge. And you see him from a different angle, don't you? He's, he's West African, you may have noticed. It's interesting, when Rembrandt painted him, he was very European. We see Christ here from a different angle for those of us from North America. He looks much like the West Africans, not even like the East Africans or the South Africans. There are five different African indigenous races, and this artist has cast Jesus in, a, in the light of a West African. The children are gathered around him, and the looks on their faces, if you're not close enough, perhaps after chapel you can come up and look at him. Their eyes, all of the eyes, all of the heads, everything is looking up to Jesus. They're surrounding Jesus in their bare feet, which you can't see on this slide, but they're surrounding Jesus in their natural clothes. One little tyke is holding up a palm branch. And then one very lucky young girl is up in his arms, and she's looking down at her brothers and sisters, and the look on her face is, look at me. I'm in Jesus' arms. And Jesus is very gracious, very flowing, very simple, very enormous, but very warm. Notice the children are not afraid of him. There's not one look of fear, amazement, awe, even a childlike sort of uh, uh, happiness looking up at, at his eyes, wondering what will be next. You could picture Jesus about to tell a joke by the way the children are gathered around him. Now, I want to contrast this scene with a scene from the Gospels that you'll have to picture in your mind's eye. The scene happened in about A.D. 67. There was a man in a jail cell in the Mamertine prison in Rome. He'd been imprisoned in Rome before, but this was at least his second time, according to most uh, people who've researched the history, and he was there for good this time. He was there, and the only way he would leave there would be when his head was severed by a sword from his body. He was an older man, approaching 70 years old. He had walked all over the known world of his culture of that day. 
He'd been shipwrecked, he'd been beaten, he'd been thrown in numerous jails. On one occasion, he'd been stoned to death. He was under a pile of stones, and when the people left him for dead, he got up out of the stones. They hadn't quite knocked him off. And he went right back into the same town and told them the same thing that he'd been stoned for before. It was, of course, the Apostle Paul, known as Saul of Tarsus, who had persecuted the people who followed this Jesus, who'd persecuted them so much that he stood approvingly at the death of Stephen, one of the seven deacons chosen in the book of Acts. Paul, it says, they took off their cloaks so they could really throw the rocks at Stephen hard, and they lay their cloaks next to Paul or Saul at that time, and it says he looked down approvingly. But then he was on his way to imprison more of the followers of Jesus, and he met Jesus Christ for the first time. We don't think that Paul probably knew Jesus in the flesh. We're not sure of that 100%, but most indications are that his first true encounter with Jesus Christ was the risen Christ in all of his power. And he fell to his feet, and his life was changed in the next 30 years of his life, the next 37 years of his life, were dedicated to proclaiming a message of good news, a message that was so good that he would go through anything to proclaim it. And as he sat chained in that Mamertine prison about to be executed, he wrote to one of his young friends, one of his young colleagues in the faith, a man named Timothy. And I'm not sure how old Timothy would have been at this time. My guess would be mid-30s, but I, I was thinking about that driving in on the way. I'll have to ask one of our New Testament people that question. And uh, he says this to Timothy. First of all, he, he, he knows that he's about to die. He, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out. He says this, For yourself, Timothy, keep your mind sane and balanced, meeting whatever suffering this may involve, and go on steadily proclaiming the good news and carry out to the full the commission that God gave you. As for me, I feel that the last drops of my life are being poured out for God. The time for my departure has arrived. The glorious fight that God gave me I have fought, and the course that I was set I have finished, and I have kept the faith. The future for me holds a crown of righteousness, which shall the Lord, the true judge, will give to me in that day. Not, of course, only to me, but to all those who have loved what they have seen of him. The last moment of his life, he's looking forward to this this victor's wreath, is the phrase he uses, the wreath that they would put on the head of an Olympian who won the race. He says, when my last drop of blood is poured out for God, when my head is severed from my body, I'll be receiving a wreath in the presence of Jesus Christ. But not just me, all those who have loved what they've seen of him. Other translations translate this, all those who have longed for his appearance. Other translations say, all those who have loved his appearing. I like the Phillips translation on this one. All those who love and have loved what they've seen of him. At this very last moment in Paul's life, he wants Timothy to remember the good news. But the question is, what is that good news? And what is it? What is it that took Paul all over the world? What is it that took him to this very dungeon, this prison? What is it that took him to the executioner's sword? What is so good about this news? 
In those days, people would go out and proclaim the news of an emperor's birth, and they called it good news. They would say, this is the good news of his birth. There is born unto you this day an emperor. Sound familiar? And he is the emperor of all the lands. And he's come here in person, and he's a god, he's divine, but he's a person. That's what they said of the emperors. But of course, Paul was preaching an emperor to be sure, but the Lord of the universe. Whom to know was good news. Whom to see with your eyes was a change of life. Was an invitation to real life for the first time. When Paul first saw Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he, all debates ended. All discussion ended because he was surrounding the person of Christ like these children. And he was invited into the reality that Jesus was about and brought in his person. What is this good news? Paul sums it up in 2 Timothy in this way. I'm reading from the Phillips. Timothy, remember always, chapter 2, verse 8. Remember always, as the center of everything, Jesus Christ, descended from David, risen from the dead. This is my gospel. Remember always, at the center of everything, Jesus Christ. This is my gospel. This, this painting summarizes it. Christ at the center, integrating in love and warmth and truth all around him. The whole universe is meant to be like that. The gospel is not simply thoughts about Jesus. It's not doctrines concerning Jesus. Because many people know the doctrines concerning Jesus, but they are not full of good news. The gospel is Jesus Christ himself. In reading the uh, word study and the uh, theological dictionary of the New Testament, Gerhard Friedrich says this about Jesus and the concept of gospel. In this case, Jesus' gospel is not a new teaching because he brings himself. What is given with his person constitutes the content of his gospel. The gospel is equated with Christ, with his name, and with the kingdom of God which he came to bring. If we were to sum up the content of the gospel, the good news, in a single word, it would be Jesus, the Christ. It wasn't a theory that gripped Paul on that road. It wasn't a theory that had him right at the last moment of his life. Remember at the center of everything, Jesus Christ. It was an encounter. An encounter with love incarnate with love, with flesh on it. It was in, quite in contrast to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3. He says there will be people who will maintain a facade of religion, but their life will deny its truth. That's in contrast to a person who's, been, who's surrounded Jesus Christ himself. You know, you go to the Hollywood or Universal Studios and they've got these little facades. They put up these pretend buildings. They look very real from the outside. But if you peek around the corner, they're just little sticks holding them up. He says, that's the way a lot of our religion is. It's a facade. But that the truth of our lives doesn't bear it out. Why is it this last weekend many of us watched the funeral for Mother Teresa? 
One million people lined the streets. You couldn't tell from the television uh, coverage, but in reading the newspaper accounts, they said the entire city came to a standstill. Why? For this four foot eight inch, 87 year old nun who was dead. Why did President Clinton send the First Lady? Why did the Queen of Jordan come? Why were dignitaries from all over the world scrambling to send their highest representatives? Why were there lepers and broken and beaten people and people just out of prison there at the funeral as well? Why did one million people, most of whom did not share Mother Teresa's convictions about Jesus Christ, why did they stop and do homage to her? Because her religion, whatever you may say, however you may fault her, and I'm sure she has some faults, her religion was actual. It was essential. It was true. It was not a facade. You could look behind it and it was solid. And Hindus and Muslims and atheists knew it. What does she say about her own faith? What does she say her own call was? Let me read a quote from her. Some people have wondered, understandably, because of the newspaper coverage, was she truly dedicated to Jesus Christ, or was this just sort of a humanitarian thing that she has done, that she's about? Is she merely a social worker, a great one to be sure, a kind one, an empathetic one, but is this truly somebody motivated by Christ? Let me share her words, because I think she is an example, though She comes from a tradition that is not my own. We have differences theologically. If we were able to sit down and discuss them, we would disagree on many things. But we would not disagree on our love for Christ and on what obedience should look like. Christ calls each of us, she says, to be his co-worker by allowing him to radiate and live his life in us and through us in the world of today. Let me read that again. Christ calls each of us to be his co-worker. So he's calling you to be his co-worker. When he calls the people around him, he's not just calling them around only to bless them. He's calling around them to invite them into a family, and this family has a mission. It has a purpose. And he's calling us to be co-workers by allowing, I go on to quote her, by allowing him, Jesus Christ, to radiate and live his life in us and through us in the world of today, so that the poor, seeing us, may be drawn to Christ and invite him to enter their homes and their lives. So that the poor, every person you meet who sees you, should see Christ in you and should feel the invitation of Christ to them through you. No mere facade will pull that off, will it? No mere recitation of the creeds, as important as they are for keeping our eyes on the mark and for not being led astray. But no mere recitation of them will give that kind of power. It's interesting, her uh, biographer here who started the preaching order of Mother Teresa, there's also a male order as well as a female order, says this. A broad spectrum of people are interested in Mother Teresa's methods. One time, young activists in the Communist Party came to ask her how she succeeded in fighting poverty, where they had seemed to fail. The Communists wanted to know what her secret was. Wondering at her influence on the people and the success of her ventures, governor officials from India wrote to her, 
asking her if she would train some of their social workers. What was her secret of success, they asked. They thought she'd discovered a new social work technique, something they might add a further chapter to the textbooks of sociology. It was difficult to explain to these well-meaning people that they would find no new method, no new principle of sociology. The seeker would merely find the love of Jesus expressing itself through understanding hearts and dedicated hands ready to perform any humble work of mercy. They would witness the gospel message entering into daily life. Isn't that a wonderful statement? They would find no new method, no new principle, merely find the love of Jesus expressing itself through understanding hearts, dedicated hands, ready to perform any humble work of mercy. They would witness the gospel message entering into daily life. I would like to say with Paul, remember Jesus Christ, the center of everything. This is the good news. Not just remember about him, but accept his invitation to be a part of his plan. There was another person in his life I preached on more uh, uh, at greater length last semester, and Rembrandt did a tremendous painting, several actually, one of which we'll look at now, of a woman whose life was changed. Let's bring the lights way down. I know this is difficult to see. We're still working on getting, getting them to the size we need. I want to describe it for those of you who can't quite see it. The picture is a sweeping picture. You're in some kind of a cathedral. It's, it's meant to be the temple in Jerusalem. And, and your eyes first are caught up with the enormity of the cold structure behind. And there are thousands or hundreds of people, and there's, there are people judging others. There's a person up in the upper right-hand middle corner who is judging, giving judgment over a group below them. And down in the lower left-hand corner, but at the center stage of the picture, your eye is drawn down. And as it's drawn down, it focuses first on this woman kneeling before another figure, and then up to the eyes of Jesus. And there's a huge crowd of religious and educated dignitaries, and one of them is stretching out his arm in incredulous questioning and judgment, pointing to the woman who, as we know, had been caught in the very act of adultery, and they drug her before Jesus. And this, this judge of hers is pointing, you can see his hand, I think, even from the bleachers, that, that hand standing against the black robe in judgment, as if to say, look at what we have here, Master. Look at this. What do you say about this? And then you look up to Jesus. His hands, quite unlike the hands of the accusers, are one hanging down beside him, the other gently at his chest. His face is calm. He's not shocked by her, her sin. He's not shocked by her being brought there. And he is the measure of calmness. And you know what he will do. If you look at this painting, he hasn't rendered his verdict yet. But you know what the verdict will be just by looking at his countenance and contrasting it with the rest. There in the center of this cold temple stands Jesus with one person, like the little children surrounding Jesus. She was surrounding Jesus, but for a different reason, not to receive a blessing, but to receive his condemnation. She met him face to face, and her life was changed. Why? Because Jesus went against the grain. 
He went against the grain. As my researcher, Anna Wiebe, wrote to me, in this painting, Jesus goes against the grain in forgiving this person. And he goes against the grain in all that he does. He brings love. He brings mercy. He brings an invitation for purpose and meaning. He's always going against the grain. Here in this Rembrandt, we have the purest Christ in the purest way. Let me read a quote from uh, Anna Wiebe in her note to me about her ponderings on this painting. This is the pure Christ. This is the pure love of the pure Christ. Stripped of all of dogma, doctrine, theories, lessons, teachings, the good news is that he lived and walked on earth. And he possesses a wild, eager, unending love for us. I like that. The good news is that he was real. Not just a religious facade. He was real. He walked. He talked. He met people like this woman. He met children like we saw in the other painting. And he has a wild love for us. An eager love. He's always calling us toward himself. And an unending love for each of us. Remember, at the center of everything, Jesus Christ. This is my gospel. I will receive a wreath of righteousness, not only I, but all those who have loved what they've seen of him. I want to ask you a question this morning. Have you seen enough about Jesus? Have you seen enough, not just about him, but have you seen enough of him to render your verdict? To love or to reject? Or have you seen so little of him that you float along with the bland facade of religion? Have you seen enough of Jesus? Have you seen his heart? Have you seen his love for holiness? Have you seen his hatred of sin? Have you seen his unending mercy? Have you experienced it? Have you seen enough? You know, not everyone who saw Jesus in the flesh was changed by him. Only those who saw him and loved what they saw. Have you seen him and loved what you see? Mother Teresa saw him, and best I can see she did a very fine job of loving him. Because the mark of true love is that you become like that which you love. A person who loves drugs becomes an addict and their life spins out of control. A person who loves alcohol becomes an addict and their lives become insane according to Alcoholics Anonymous. A person who loves art becomes full of the love of creative ability. The person who loves music becomes like the music they love. The person who loves another person. Have you never seen people that have been married for 60 plus years, these little old couples, and they even look like each other? And they answer, they finish each other's sentences, and you feel like you're just seeing a male and a female version of the same human being. You become like that which you love. Have you seen enough of Jesus Christ to love him and therefore begin to becoming like him? At his last supper, Jesus beckoned people with an invitation. And Salvador Dali painted this picture, quite different than a West African Jesus. It's a picture we're going to see because I'm going to use it as a meditation at the end of chapel in several chapels throughout this semester. So I'm not going to comment on it in detail here. You'll notice he's a 20th century European-looking Jesus. 
He doesn't have a beard. He's beckoning graciously with his hands. It's a surrealistic picture in their fishing boats in the foreground, reminiscent of his call to the disciples. It's an unconventional image of Jesus, and I think Jesus was very unconventional. To quote Anna Weeby again, there are boats floating on his tunic. His face is beardless, his skin young, his eyes alluring, engaging us with the movement in his arms, hands, and eyes, beckoning us toward him. My hope is that you will remember always, at the center of everything, Jesus Christ. This is the good news. Let's pray. I'd like you to just be in silence. I'd like you to ponder the words preached this morning as Diane closes us in a prayerful meditation.